This is the guy who ordered all of the children in the area of Bethlehem, all of the male children under the age of two years old, to be executed. He was not right in the head. How do you think his son's going to respond when this guy shows up out of the Judean wilderness wearing a a robe made of camel hair, tied around the waist with a, a rope, with honey stuck in his beard, because that's what he ate in the desert, honey and and, uh, grasshopper legs, right? And he's calling Herod out for the sin of adultery. It is not lawful for you to take her as your wife. She is your brother's wife. That is against the law of God. That's a foul. How's Herod going to respond? Well, I appreciate your opinion, John, but you know, what, what's right for you isn't necessarily what's right for me, and, and we've got to be tolerant of things in this world, right? No. He wants to kill him. But, Herod is a politician. So, because the people recognize John as a prophet... And because Herod doesn't want to start a revolt among his population, he just has him arrested and put in jail. Nice and easy, right? We'll just shut him up. You go sit in the dungeon for a little while. Now, Herodias, on the other hand, wasn't satisfied with that arrangement. She wanted him dead. She wanted John to be permanently silenced. Now, how often do we hear or use that phrase, don't shoot the messenger? Why do we we say that? Yeah, because if the king didn't like the message that the messenger brought, what would happen? The messenger gets executed. That's exactly what happens. The king and his adulterous lover didn't like the message, so they wanted John dead at any cost. She didn't care about the population. She didn't like the message. He was, he was giving her a bad reputation. Now, principle number two. John, as a prophet, was filling an official office in God's kingdom. As part of that office, as part of the prophetic office, he was calling out sin in the life of the government. That's a responsibility that we have. Calling out sin in the life of the government. Calling out areas where the government is not fulfilling their role. Now, the church is not supposed to be the government. Government is a structure that is ordained by God to provide for the protection of people and the dispensing of justice. Okay, that's what God created government for, was to provide for the dispensing of justice and the protection of the citizens of that government. Okay? That's not what the church is supposed to do. What is our job? 
to proclaim the gospel, to show mercy, to show love, to show God's character to those same people. Right? And sometimes to rebuke and correct those who are engaged in sinful activity. Now, people who are not believers, it should not surprise us when their life doesn't look like a Christian's life. And for them, the message that we need to share is the message of the gospel. Because that's the message that's going to save them. I can tell them all day long, hey, stop doing whatever. Give up the sin of fill in the blank. Pick a sin du jour. That's not going to save them. I need to share the gospel with them. For people who claim to be believers, who are practicing those sins, what does my message need to be? Repent. Stop. Pray. Receive God's forgiveness and knock it off. Don't do it anymore. Right? But what is my position, what is my role when it comes to government? Well, they're supposed to protect the people and they're supposed to dispense justice. The government does not get saved, by the way. We don't have a Christian government. We've never had a Christian government in this country, ever, because government cannot be Christ-like. People can be Christ-like. Okay, Our government was built on biblical principles. That's a fact. You can't argue with that. We don't have a Christian government. But what I can do is I can call that government on sponsoring of sin. I can write to my congressman as a believer, and I can ask them, please do not support a bill that permits A, B, C. And if they do, then I can write to my congressman, or I can call my congressman, or if you're a modern person like me, you can email your congressman. I'm disappointed that you supported A, B, C. I'm probably not going to vote for you in the next election. We can send letters. We can make phone calls. We have that capability in this country, right? And if my congressman proclaims the name of Christ, well, then that's different. <laughs> then I can, okay, so as a Christian, please tell me how you support A, B, C. Step out of your political office and tell me how you can vote for that. So that's our role as the church. We have not done a real good job of doing that in the last 200 years in this country. There's a catch. What happened to John when he did that? He was thrown in prison and eventually beheaded. Are we willing to pay the price? Because I'll tell you right now, 
that's why we haven't been filling the role. That's principle number two. Now, back to the narrative. Herod's birthday party. Herod is a popular ruler. He throws a birthday party with all of the pomp and circumstance you can expect for a son of Herod the Great. So there's wine, women, and song. There's a feast. There's rich people. There's dignitaries. There's rulers. He's got everybody there, probably except for his father-in-law and his legal wife. And as a surprise, this ought to be another one of those things that makes your skin crawl, his stepdaughter, who was probably in her late teens, danced for the assembly. And this was not a good Baptist interpretive movement dance. This was not a, a, a safe ballroom dance. This was probably a provocative, uh, very erotic dance. It was inappropriate. It's her stepdad. It's her great uncle. And she danced well enough. Everybody loved it. Not for the artistic content. And so Herod, in public probably lubricated by plenty of wine, proclaims his admiration for this dance and tells this young lady, I will give you whatever you want. He made an oath. Now, there was no way he could have backed out. Not only did he make this oath, but he made it in public with plenty of witnesses. Now, this young woman, she goes to her mother and says, Hey, King Herod has told me he'll give me whatever I want. Tell me, mother, what do I want? Do I ask for gold? Do I ask for jewels? Do I ask for... What what do I ask for? What does her mother want more than anything else? John to be killed. And so that's what she asks for. Now there's a funny statement in here. All of a sudden, Herod is suddenly aware of God's law concerning an oath. Because God's law says that if you make an oath, you keep it. If you swear to do something, you do it. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't make an oath. You shouldn't have to. If you say you're going to do something, be the kind of person who does it. If you say no, then be the kind of person who means it. Herod is suddenly aware that he can't back out of this oath. That that would be a violation of God's law. Why do I say he's suddenly aware? Well, because he didn't pay any attention to the oath he made when he married his wife. only that conscience had struck him a little bit sooner. And though Ma- and, and Matthew tells us, um, the king was sorry, verse 9. But because of his oaths and because of his guests, 
he commanded it to be given. It made him sorry. Now, it may have made him sorry because he knew the people were going to have a, a bad reaction to the prophet being killed. We don't know. But he kept the promise. He had John beheaded and his head brought to the girl on a platter, which she then gave to her mother. The end of the passage, the disciples came, they took the body, they buried it, probably in accordance with the standard practices of the day, so wrapping it, treating it with dignity and respect, placing it in the tomb. And then Matthew says, and they went and told Jesus. What Matthew doesn't tell us is why. Why did they go and tell Jesus? It could be because he was John's cousin, so they wanted him to know. It could be because he was a prophet and they recognized Jesus as a prophet. It could be that they were seeking comfort for their grief. Or maybe seeking another rabbi to follow as they were seeking God's kingdom. We don't know. Whatever their reason was, when they got there, there's no doubt that they were comforted in their grief by the one that John had proclaimed to be the Lamb of God. Now here's that last principle in this section. When we are in a time of grief, and it can be grief over all kinds of things, it can be grief over a lost job, because, you know, that can be a real punch in the gut to all of a sudden not have a means of providing for your obligations and your family. It can be grief over a lost loved one. It can be grief over a broken relationship. It can be grief over a medical diagnosis. It can be grief over a natural disaster. It can be grief just because you look at the world that we live in as it's presented to us every day on the news and it hurts to see where we are. There is no one better to go to when you're in that time of grief than the one who came to set the captive free. The one who came to give sight to the blind and, and to make the lame to walk and the deaf to hear and delivered the oppressed from the power of Satan. There is no one better to cling to than the one who came to give comfort to those who mourn. And that's Christ. It's His life that we hang on to for the righteousness that we have in the eyes of God. If you are a child of God, you have the righteousness of Christ. That's what allows us to pray. Think about that for a second. How many times do you pray before you eat? How many times do you pray before you go to bed? How many times do you pray when you come to church on Sunday? How many times do you pray Monday through Saturday? 
Do you know, without the righteousness of Christ, you wouldn't be able to do that? Without the righteousness of Christ, how dare you think that the creator of the universe would ever listen to prayers that are so covered with unrighteousness? And so we cling to Jesus' life because in his life he was perfect. Perfect righteousness. It's his death that we recognize as the payment for our sin debt. He died so we don't have to. He paid the price so we didn't have to write the check. And it's his resurrection that we see as confirmation of all that he did on our behalf. See, he didn't just have enough righteousness to cover our sin debt. He had enough righteousness to cover our sin debt and have enough left over for his own account. Because if he just took on our sin and was then unrighteous, he wouldn't have raised from the dead. He would have been sin. He would have been dirty and not acceptable as a sacrifice. But because he was perfectly righteous, he had that much righteousness on his account that he did not stay in the grave. That is what we celebrate as we observe the Lord's Supper. Now, because we have some guests with us today, I'm going to explain a little bit more in depth than I normally do.